You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. In this episode, we speak with the leader in the assisted living space in Canada, as well as one of the most prolific distributors of exempt products. We talk about how this type of seniors living and housing is used by its occupants and the prospects for its growth going forward, and hear about what investors are looking for when considering investments for their portfolios. James Braun is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. This is Alternative Thinking. This is James with CASA. Today is Friday, April 16th. Today we have Randy Baudouin with uh, Invico Capital Corporation and Jim McDonald with Levante Living. Uh, we're going to start with self-introductions. We'll uh, start with you, Jim. Thanks very much. Uh, I'm Jim McDonald and I'm uh, Senior Vice President and Partner at Levante Living. Very simply, Levante Living is a company that focuses on the acquisition and operation of retirement properties in the Canadian market. We focus on assisted living facilities that are based in Southern Ontario. Uh, Our focus is uh, one where we stay in the assisted living, which is uh, one of three sectors of Mm. retirement, independent living, assisted living, and long-term care. And we make our focus the tier two market, uh, which is middle market Canada, uh, based on the assisted living facilities and the ownership and operation of those facilities. As a result, we focus on uh, residents that are in their early 80s and beyond and have some form of Mm. needs uh, for ongoing help. Interesting. I I didn't even think about the three stages there. So um, I know when I was in my insurance days, we had something called like long-term care coverage that people would get. And um, I guess there's probably some sort of government funding for that, I imagine. I'm, I'm quite sure. Maybe tell me how how uh, maybe people pay for the the assisted living and how, what kind of like kind of price point, because I guess independent is more like a, a rent plus maybe some uh, helper. And then long term care sounds like it's fairly involved. So what's what's kind of your 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 halfway house here with the assisted living? How does how is that differentiated? You're correct. The structure is set up by the industry licensing where there's three separate licenses to operate as independent, as assisted, or as long-term care. Independent and assisted living are a pay-as-you-play model where there's Mm -hmm. no government sponsorship. And the independent has minimal to no services. It's more of a rental concept for young seniors. Assisted living is a facility that has multiple services and will adapt to the needs of the senior. And long-term care is actually a hospital licensing with a substantial support program from Uh the Ministry of Health. And uh, that facility, really the differences between them are uh, no uh, medical or nursing services in independent, probably several hours a day on average for assisted living and a full day, uh, an eight hour day or more of nursing services in long-term care. As a result, the averages of uh, residency within the industry, assisted living, Mm -hmm. a typical resident may be there for five or six years and then graduate into the next level, 
long-term care, a typical resident is approximately two years till end of life. Oh, wow. Oh, that's interesting. Um, boy, all these things we start to think about as we get older, right? So how many, how many uh, facilities do you have? And um, like, what, what kind of, is there anything in the, the makeup of the, the demographics or is it always pretty much the same age group in the different areas that you might be operating? Currently, we have eight properties, and they're all located in southern Ontario. And if you just look at a map, you go 401 east and west, 400 north, or the 403 down to Niagara. Those oh, are yeah. the general areas where we have our geographic location of our properties. And we focus on those because of the uh, location of the Tier 2 market, which is uh, smaller uh, municipalities, uh, typically your 150 to 250,000 regional population. And uh, we do not focus on the major centers such as Toronto or Ottawa, mm -hmm. simply for the fact that the cost of property uh, based on a cap rate is much, much lower in the major centers, making the price of purchase much higher, uh, where we focus on the tier two market. Uh, where we have good demographics, consistent population, good demand and growing demand on the number of seniors within those communities. Uh, but our price points are far lower and the cap rates much higher uh, to facilitate the acquisition mm -hmm. and immediate uh, returns on the cash flow coming through because of the better price points and the fact we focus on more of a middle market than a high end market. Yeah, that sounds like a good plan. So how are these set up with these individual, I don't know, is it like a condo unit or do you have a fund and, and they own all eight properties in one fund? Like how, how do you package this for investors? Our structure is based on a GP LP structure and uh, we have a master LP where we have multiple LPs underneath based on the uh. different timetables and positions of acquisition that we will make, whether it's one property or several together and at that various times. And then we put them all underneath the master LP and then our investors then have the ability to see the returns coming from the whole portfolio. So from that end of things, we do focus on a tier two model uh, with multiple properties. And our, our focus is also on the fact, as I mentioned, middle market, which means we really see ourselves getting a lot of property uh, requests for purchase from owners who are in the private sector of the retirement industry, but are in their seventies mm -hmm. and they want to retire. So it's a, uh, consolidation play, but a consolidation play based on, uh, three factors. Factor one being the demographic mm -hmm. shift and the growth in the number of seniors coming every single year till we flatten out around 2040, the increased demand to move patients out of hospitals and the lack of space in long-term care, uh, requesting greater demand to place uh, patients out of hospitals into assisted living with additional services. And the oh, factor yeah. that we have uh, so many owner operators of retirement facilities, assisted living facilities that are wanting to retire and giving a, a great market opportunity for us. Well, I love those consolidation plays. That's awesome. Uh, those can play it really well. Let's go over to, to Calgary with uh, Randy. Uh, Randy, let's hear, let's hear your story and, and what Invico's up to. I mean, you have quite a few different products on your shelf and uh, you cross the country for uh, for placement of those products. So what's happening in Invico now? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, we got lots on the go right now. Um, Q4 actually of 2020 was by far our busiest 
quarter in the company's history for deploying capital. And we deployed about $30 million across wow. six deals uh, in Canada and the U.S. We continue to, uh, you know, we found really good opportunities. We raised a lot of money in the summer. And mm -hmm. what we found in the summer was a lot of people were sort of backing away from doing deals at that point. I think that was, as a, you know, obviously what was going on with COVID, but it really pushed us into Q3, Q4. Uh, to get some of these deals done. And we, we, you know, we continue to see enormous opportunities across the various sectors that we focus on. Right on. Yeah, well, let's, let's go into that then. Let's talk about code for a sec, because it's been about a year. And uh, when we started doing this about a year ago, that was always the, uh, you know, the, the flavor du jour. And now it's the flavor dawn or whatever you might of the year. Um, so, yeah, so you could say they, they, they I could, because I saw that investors were still looking to do things. They wouldn't necessarily allocate to new managers or new funds or new anything, but re-upping with current stuff that they had would be great. But then on your side too, I mean, you got to allocate this capital. I guess there was only so much in the pipeline. Uh, so how did you, how did you guys do your your pivot in into COVID and then th through it and now maybe we'll see the tail end of it in the next little while here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So when, when COVID first, first hit, we actually took a step back. Uh, normally our OM comes down for a ref refresh at the end of April every year for about a week or two mm -hmm. as we did our financials. So rather than come back to the market right away, we decided, you know, let's take a step back. Let's see what's going to be happening and let's see what's going on. And, you know, it was great that we had the patience and, you know, we did something similar in 2015, 2016 when oil prices you know, corrected and went from $140 to $30 was take a step back, be patient mm -hmm. and assess the market. So when we came back to the market, we actually came back with a discounted unit um, compared to our normal subscription price. And that allowed us oh. to raise a lot of capital. Um, we raised about $35 million in like six weeks because people were still looking to invest. And, you know, it, it probably hurt us a little bit when people sort of backed away from deals. We had a little bit of cash drag. Uh, but certainly getting those six deals done was was huge for the company. Um, and there's kind of two sides mm -hmm. to our story through COVID, right? There's the capital deployment, and we're seeing a lot of things pick up in the marketplace right now. As you know, the banks have tightened up on lending, uh, which really opens the door for a lot of firms like Invico that, that play in the private mm -hmm. debt space. I think, you know, James, you probably know the stat better than I do, but uh, the private debt market has exploded in the last 12 months. Uh, lots of Oh, yeah. So many shops product. have doubled in the last two years or so. Yeah, everybody's really, really doing well, like you say, as the banks have come back. Yeah, and it's been kind of nice of having Invico be sort of, you know, a little bit of a leader in the space because we got like a, just about an eight-year track record now in, in private debt. And then the, mm. other, the other side of our business is the raising capital side, which we really saw a lot of change. You know, most salespeople are extroverts. So we're used to, you know, handshaking, having <laughs> yeah. a beer on a patio, meeting people, doing presentations like in boardrooms and for clients. And that kind of all stopped. Um, so to your point, when you said, you know, people were upping up on their the, the existing allocators that uh, the existing funds that they were using. That's where all our success came from, was from almost all our existing client base, uh, brokers, yeah. family offices that we deal with, some small pension funds. And it was really hard to prospect um, because I think at the end of the day, and on the sales side, you still sort of need that handshake and that eye-to-eye -eye contact to build up some trust in the relationship. It's I say that, yet you know we just had a, a pretty nice ticket come in from a rep uh, that we've never met that we just had a conversation with over the phone. So I guess it can be done. 
Yeah, I hear you there. Like we've been going, we had hard pivot like about a year or so, 13 months ago or whatever it might be. And, you know, we've noticed that at the end of last year, I think people kind of said, well, shoot, it's going to be about a year now. So I guess we'll join or in your case, we'll, we'll invest or, you know, in whatever. And so people kind of, kind of, not really, I shouldn't say capitulated, but they kind of said, okay, okay, this is kind of the new normal. I would normally wouldn't do this, like if we could meet, but we're not meeting for a long time. So let's just, let's just, let's just go. So we've, um, we've actually had quite a few new members that I'd never, I've never seen, I've seen on Zooms, of course, but uh, not in real life. At some point, you know, we'll get on the road and see everybody again, which would be great. But um, yeah, just kind of a different, like interim normal, I guess it is now. Uh, so Rand, what, what do you think like with, uh, like how do people see things like the assisted living? Like how do they, how do they view it in their portfolio? Um, uh, and maybe hear about how, uh, like how you're, you're positioning with folks and then we'll go over to Jim for more of the, the granularity there too. Well, I mean, the simple story for us is, you know, um, you know, like they're not making any more land. They're really not building a whole lot of new facilities. And, you know, the, the, the demand can't meet or the supply can't meet up with the demand. So we really mm. look, uh, when we talk to the market, uh, we position it as it is a great consolidation play. I mean, COVID obviously has been not great from, you know, from an individual perspective. But I think people mm -hmm. who have owned a lot of these assisted living facilities for 10, 15, 25 years, this kind of put them over the edge where they said, you know what, it's time for me to retire. It's time to unload these buildings, which has created a lot of opportunity for Levante Living Trust to go out there and consolidate some of these, uh, some of these buildings. So we really position it as a real estate play. And as you know, there's tons of real estate offerings out there, whether it be commercial or multifamily. This really gives us a little mm -hmm. bit of a niche play in the private market being focused on the healthcare industry. Cool. How about to you, Jim? Uh, yeah, you mentioned owner operator selling. Like we've seen this story before. When I was a broker in the nineties, it was Laidlaw, there was Lowen, there were so many others that you know you start to roll up these these folks who are kind of motivated sellers. Like they, they, you know, a deal might come through every seven years or so. I think the number is for. So uh, when you talk to them, they're if they're half motivated, they'll probably do it. I guess at a decent price, and you're not in the four one six area code, so you're probably getting. Like I say decent deals the 905 705 sort of thing so um how uh how do you see this going forward is it going to be eight properties become 18 in the next uh couple of years or what, what kind of what's the expansion plan for you we had a vision uh that would have us uh take our fund that we uh, kicked off in 2018 uh and take a five to seven year period minimum to build up the uh, bed count. And within the industry, there's a magic number or a tipping point, which is about 3000 beds. And once you hit that, mm. your company gets into another stage or size and in regards to market interest and market demand. And so from that end oh, of things, okay. we, uh, had made it our goal to, uh, get into the, uh, much bigger market opportunity. And that came about, uh, much faster than we expected because of the change in the market and the number of owner operators that decided to withdraw or retire because of age and because of COVID and mm -hmm. all the factors going on in the marketplace at the time. Uh, we also found ourselves in a position uh, somewhat ideal in that the larger public players are not competing with us. They're focusing on the major centers, they're focusing mm. on the tier one or a property development, which means they're building much bigger facilities, 200 to 400 beds. 
versus an 80 to 120 bed market that we play in. And that really led to a big difference in itself in that we have more offerings mm-hmm. of properties where the owners want to sell to someone they trust. And our background, our history of having been in the business for many decades uh, gives us a reputation that is uh, approachable and makes the owner operator feel comfortable. And number two, we don't have big uh, cash players uh, competing with us. Uh, We have seen some competition from offshore money, but the vendors are not as eager to sell because they want someone who's got the experience, the licensing, uh, the track record and branding to be in the market and not strip the properties down. And from our background of being in the industry for, well, my partner's been over 45 years uh, and their family have been in the business a long time. These combination of uh, history and operating background and experience and the fact we've had licensing continuously through all this period uh, gives us a good reputation to bring more uh, parties to the table. And when there's opportunity to purchase, less competition than you'd expect in a market at this time. Jim, so you said 3,000 beds is kind of your, your the, the tipping point. Where are you guys now? You have eight units. How many in each unit? How many beds you had? And, and you, do you want to hit that 3,000? We're approximately uh, just about 700 beds currently. And uh, with the growth uh, rate ahead of us, uh, we're in mm-hmm. a process right now where we're expecting to double the bed counts uh, this year and probably again next year. So hitting that 3,000 oh, wow. bed count is actually going to be within the next three years, we think, at this pace. Yeah, that's fantastic. How about, how about on the uh, the funding side, like for, for, for the fund, like what kind of investors do you see that are buying into this? Is it is it people who are maybe soon to be your clients or is it younger folks or, or any, any particular demographic that that's, uh, sees the opportunity here? It's a mixed bag, and the uh, reason being it's a mutual fund trust designed to the uh, raise, and we target uh, the investor groups through exempt market dealers and IROC brokerages through uh, Randy uh-huh. and his team. And by having this mm-hmm. two-tiered methodology of raising private uh, funding, where we've been able to get uh, what they classify as eligible investors, uh, RSPs, TFSAs, and then fully accredited investors who come in uh, directly uh, with larger investment uh, numbers or from the PMs within the IROC brokerages. Oh, of course so, yeah. Yeah, because they're all accredited as I was, or as I am, I guess, because I was a broker for five years now right. suddenly I'm accredited for the rest of my life. So it's, it's great. <laughs> um, and then, so what, what kind of yield do they get off of this? And, and what, what, I guess that's what, what would they like to see or what do you, what, what do you hear as feedback from investors? If any, uh, we built this around the modeling of, uh, number one, that when we acquire a property, we do a five stage due diligence. And once we complete a purchase and sale, transition the property in, it has to do three things right away. It has to be generating enough cash flow day one that allows us to pay the mortgage. It's a first mortgage, typically uh, 50 to 60, 60 something percent is our range. Mm -hmm. And then it has to have enough cash flow to cover all the operating costs and the remainder to cover the distributions for our investors. Our preferred distribution strategy for our investors 
is based on that model, which leads us to a 7% uh, distribution that is uh, annual paid monthly. And we've set it up on a mm. uh, tax efficient methodology under a return of capital model. And uh, oh my God, that's awesome. And then we do a sharing of the uh, back end when there is a redemption or exit and uh, share the profitability gain that we achieve. So I guess is the idea to cycle through these properties? Like I say, you're doubling pretty much every like once a year, every year now. At this stage, yes. Yeah, with the, with the eight you have, would you would you look to sell them at some point, or is this more like just hold on to it for forever or for twenty years, sort of thing, or kind of what's the plan on on that, or renovating them, or? Right now, all those properties are in good shape, uh, so we don't have to do major renovation. But a lot of the properties have the ability to be expanded. So as the market demand increases, we can go in and do redevelopment. Uh, example: mm. We have a property east of Toronto. Uh, right off the 401 and uh, that property has about 100 beds and when we acquired it we got an automatic approval from the ministry and from the city to do a 30 bed expansion which will do a major Ooh. increase to revenue and to valuation on the property uh, to affect a positive increase on the fund that the investors are participating in. So it really comes down to mm-hmm. making sure we buy at the right time and the right structure, and then make sure mm-hmm. we do good CapEx and, and operating procedures uh, as we go along. Uh, but our other focus is to not be a developer. We're not looking to acquire Greenfield or redevelopment mm-hmm. properties that are in process because they can't cash flow. They can't reach stabilization for quite a period of time. So we just can't, uh, we just don't focus on those other sectors, uh, especially as a developer would. And we do focus on the uh, properties that are within those sectors we talked about, but can create a good cash flow right from day one and consistently. So the back part of your question was, what do we do when we get to that tipping point? And a lot of our investors ask us about that very question. So when we deal with them directly, Uh, or through Randy and his team, uh, we make it pretty clear that we haven't had a set policy, but there's probably four different strategies that can and will be looked at once we get to that size or greater. And they could be one, stay the way we are, be private, uh, continue good growth and uh, and consistent operation, continue to build the Mm -hmm. brand and give good distributions that are tax efficient. Or we could be looking at a, a competitor domestic or offshore that wants to expand and maybe looking to do a a substantial acquisition. Or thirdly, we could be looking at a strong position from a big insurer or from a pension fund that's looking for consistent cash flow and uh, would make an offer to buy out our investor units at a premium. Or lastly, uh, which has been uh, one that has been brought forward to us by investors and by the banks, is that to get to that size, we then consider an IPO for a public offering. So very very much multiple strategies. I'm not sure which is the best for the the company, which is best for the uh, investors within our firm, uh, but we'll definitely take the time and get the consulting support to understand what's the next good step to take uh, uh, later on. Yeah, it's always good to have options, that's for sure. Absolutely. Uh, how about, how about you, Randy? Are you seeing uh, things like 
Levante Living Trust, uh, their situation being typical of some of the other products and managers that you have in your stable, or uh, are they kind of just hitting out of the park and the other guys are not not so much? Like what what, what do you see as a range uh, like in the last year with all this this craziness going down uh, that that some of the managers have um, I guess adapted their their products or maybe that their that their offering has been been more appropriate for the market or not? Yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, you know, when I look at Levante Living Trust, you know, focusing on the tier two market that Jim talked about, you know, that's where they see the opportunity. You know, we have another partner as well, uh, Avenue Living, uh, which focuses, you know, their main fund is basically a private REIT, uh, somewhere around one and a half billion dollars. And they're also kind of in the tier two market in the prairie. So they're not not in the luxury condo market uh, that they're doing their acquisition strategies on. So they've done quite well. I mean, they've raised a lot of capital. They've done lots of acquisitions uh, as a firm. And we're really seeing the opportunity there because, as you know, with COVID and, and a lot of people losing their jobs and, uh, you know, people were moving out of the luxury condo market and, and looking for these tier two buildings so that they could earn some money uh, part time and still be able to maintain their apartment uh, lifestyle living with some of these uh, with some of these deals. So definitely have seen them do quite well in this kind of market environment. Very cool. And I know your group does a lot of lending, obviously, too. So are you guys seeing uh, a good good deals maybe in the oil patch and other places, too? Or is it uh, has it been kind of like just just a more of a secular trend versus uh, what, what's been happening with COVID? Yeah, no, we've seen tons of opportunities. Uh, our primary focus has always been energy services, energy working interest, which is direct ownership, uh, uh, film financing, agriculture. But we've done a couple of deals. I can't, I, James, I can't even tell you how many emails, phone calls we got a few years ago for cannabis deals. Like it was, un- <laughs> yeah. it was like every day. It was unbelievable. And we never did any deals in that area just simply because, you know, A, Invico doesn't do any early stage or venture cap financing, right? You have to have at least demonstrated it to a certain degree some sort of cash flow, positive cash flow, you know, whether you had it at one time or you have it going on. And I can say we've done one pharmaceutical deal uh, recently and we just did another one. And so, again, we're starting to see these companies starting to move forward, uh, being cash flow positive as they start building up their business. And you do see lots of mergers happening in that area as well. Um, the other question we get asked a lot because we are in the energy space is what about renewable mm-hmm. energies? And I would say renewable energy for us is kind of where cannabis was for us three, four years ago. Right. So we're seeing a lot of early stage companies. We're seeing some companies getting cash flow positive, but quite frankly, they don't need our capital right now. They're raising a bunch of capital uh, privately. They are raising, uh, you know, whether it's government grants as well that they're receiving. So we haven't seen Hmm. a lot in that area, but I can say we are actually looking at our first, uh, our first, not renewable energy, but I guess GSG or greenhouse gas friendly company. It's a carbon capture play. So we do look in that area as we see it growing substantially here over the next, uh, over the next decade. But I have to say, James, Mm -hmm. one of the areas that we do see a lot of opportunity is in the energy side. So if you think in terms of where the market is today and, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know, you know, what the market's trading at, but, you know, every time I look at a stock, it seems like it's trading at 20, 25 times multiples. And I'm going, that is expensive to me. 
On the energy working interest side, which is really an asset class that has differentiated us in the private debt space, I have not come across a private debt fund that plays energy the way we do. Uh, we actually mm -hmm. get our capital back in about 24 to 30 months. Whoa. So we're getting our capital back, call it two to three years. And these wells, whether it's be an oil and gas, will go on producing for the next 20 years. So we're getting our capital back and now we have free cash flow coming into the fund for an extended period of time. And what that does is it really de-risks our ability to pay distributions moving forward. So it's kind of a unique asset class. It's yeah. only about 20% of the portfolio currently, which is underway what we normally are. And uh, one of the bigger deals we did in Q4 was actually a natural gas play in Canada, which we haven't done a deal in Canada for a while uh, on the energy working interest side, but this is an 80% gas play. And we certainly see gas sort of being a transition fuel to cleaner technology and cleaner energy. Well, getting your money back in a two years or so, that, that, that stuff sells itself, eh? That's, that's wild. I know, right? Now we just got to wrap our, now we just got to wrap our ESG story around it. There you go. And blockchain it. Exactly. I, I think about you every day, James, when I see cryptocurrency at 60,000. <laughs> hey, Jim, what do you see as like something that could really like kind of throw up a roadblock in front of your, your strategy there? Cause you have the licenses, obviously you have uh, properties you're looking at that are not overpriced. You have decent, uh, you know, motivated, semi-motivated sellers. You've got the demographics behind you. You've got the hospitals pushing long-term care, maybe people back, back into your lap, which is great. So, you know, what's, what's the thing that, that you tell investors, like, this is the, like, I say silver bullet. Cause that's like, I mean, it's something bad coming down like a werewolf, but like, what, what would be something that would, that would hurt the, uh, you know, the, the overall prospects of uh, retirement homes or is, is there anything really that can stop this train? I would say there's possibly two things that we don't, uh, you know, we try to always look at all the risk sectors, which there are many and, and the mitigation strategies. And I would say one of them is the fact that, uh, the long-term care in particular has a funding strategy provided by the Ministry of Health. And what if that doesn't uh -huh. continue or what if that gets adjusted because of all the issues related to COVID and, and the slower approach uh, that has been one of the problems that uh, a number of the operators have had in, in working to expand or redevelop uh, their properties through government support programs. That that could be an ongoing issue that could make the industry itself uh, more complex or more difficult to uh, maintain profitability in. Uh, the other factor is, um, hmm. is, is very simple occupancy. Uh, we talk about the, uh, the fact that we strive to have uh, over 90% occupancy at all times. With COVID, everyone in the industry saw some turndown in their occupancy numbers simply because uh, we've now been through multiple shutdowns with COVID. And once you have a shutdown uh, caused or required by the Ministry of Health and the local health units, you're not allowed to bring in new residents. But if you look at the process, the process doesn't stop. People get older, people get sick, people need to go to hospital, people need to yep. move from one sector to the other. People pass away. People go to palliative care. All of these factors are continuously moving, even though the demographics are growing. But when you're in a shutdown mode, you can't bring new residents to the table. And so that's shown right across our industry some effect to 
reducing mm. the occupancy numbers temporarily. And uh, we think that that is a, a factor, but it's one that we think is only temporary. And uh, industry research seems to indicate that they believe there'll be a strong recovery as soon as we do a couple of things. And that is get all of the residents and staffing vaccinated within the industry as uh, in, in all three categories and uh, then work very hard to support the training and, and programs mm -hmm. to get more good quality staffing. And uh, that I think in combination uh, will be the factors that we have to keep a close eye on over the next period of time, because one thing is going to continue to happen. Demographics are gonna tell us the numbers of seniors are gonna grow dramatically to the point where uh, maybe mid 2034 or approximately around there, we're going to see that one out of every four Canadians is a senior. And our baby boomers are now the front edge of that wedge. And the first baby boomers are turning 71, 72. So we're well on our way to a next wave. And we don't want to not be able to service them. We don't want to be uh, not prepared. And that is a concern that we want to make sure we address right across the industry. So it's not just ourselves, it's everyone having similar mm -hmm. potential issues and which is also creating opportunities for us because as uh, Randy said, uh, owner operators don't want to go in and redevelop their properties or upgrade them. They'd rather retire. That then becomes a buying opportunity. So you look at it in a negative, but it could be also a positive. Excellent. Well, it's uh, yeah. I was, I was trying to think if there was anything that was like really going to take it down, but it seems like it's, managing the growth and and you do have this covid thing of course which will which will pass i guess at some point um but uh yeah it's good to hear you got you have so many positives behind you there how about for you randy like looking at the landscape of all the different products uh you know the oil and gas the uh if it's not cannabis it's something else that's new like the renewables the uh you know assisted living and other other types of REITs and lending like um what do you see as, as uh, you know, aside from, of course, assisted living, other other types of uh, of opportunities that are there that maybe in the next two years or five years is, is kind of the place to be? Because it sounds like assisted living is definitely up there. Yeah, no, for sure it is. Um, one of the other areas that we're pretty focused on too right now is, you know, for lack of a better term, I'm going to just call it media. So as you may not know, we just finished uh, financing our eighth film. And what we've actually oh. seen is some of our royalty checks go up from previous films um, just because of streaming. And so nice. if you look at, con you know what, yeah, it's, it's been awesome. So a film we did eight years ago, we're getting a check for, so it's great. Um, but I think when you look at media in general and whether it's, uh, you know, streaming movies, TV, Netflix, Amazon, people are starving for content right now. And I think people are tired of watching the news. Uh, with everything going on. So, you know, we're looking at other areas that we can play and help finance in the media spectrum. So we do see some opportunity there. Yeah, we've been speaking with uh, some other folks about that too, with the, with all the streaming services, and it's really picked up. And I think things like in the, in the music front too, I think they said that Spotify is going from 10% to 15% royalties to the, to the artists. Like that is, that's, well, 50% jump, right? So you know, if you got more eyeballs yeah. on these things, then that's, uh, that's another, uh, yeah, this is just, just another revenue stream that you probably like people are not on plane. Well, I guess on planes, they could watch movies, but you know, people aren't, aren't out getting together. So they got those extra one or two hours a day to, 
watch something, binge it on Netflix, and then there it feeds right into you, doesn't it, Randy? Yeah, and I think you've seen like a few, uh, a few like uh, music royalty, you know, funds pop up too over the last six months, right? Maybe a year, but uh, you know, you're definitely seeing an increase in people starving for content and people looking for yield where this can, you know, generate off of. I mean, it, it goes right back to our our energy working interest, right? I mean, these just just free cash flow. And over to Jim, I guess if you have, do you have any parting words uh, about assisted living and the things that you're doing for uh, for our listeners? Because we uh, are kind of getting to time here, which is great. I mean, we've had a, a chock full of great content here from from both of you. Anything that you have uh, for, for final words? Uh, we're in a position right now where we've got a great market time. We've got great demographics. We have a real growth path ahead. And with that, I think, is the benefit that we've also built a strong charitable foundation that gives us that ESG uh, component to our business as a all about the uh, the community and the people within the oh. community, whether it's residents or the staffing, and uh, using our foundation to support that across all of our market. So I think it's some real positives for us in several channels of our growth, and we're really looking forward to building in both areas. No, that's great. And how about you, Randy? Last word from Calgary. My last word, well, if I can quote um, somebody who I, I've started following, uh, Brad Simpson, who is the chief wealth strategist for TD Asset Management. He wrote a white paper a few years ago and he said, constructing a portfolio today without alternatives is as unthinkable as buying a car without airbags. All I can tell people mm-hmm. is markets are expensive and there's got to be a market correction coming somewhere. I don't know when or what's going to be the catalyst, but your best defense right now is looking at alternative investments for your portfolio. I love it. I love how you got part of our uh, our name in there. That's fantastic. Gotcha, buddy. <laughs> well, thanks a lot. Thank, thanks, Randy. Thanks, Jim. We'll uh, look forward to have you guys on another uh, podcast again sometime soon. Thank you. Thanks so much.